1: Hey, good people. I'm Rob Wolf with your favorite podcast. Uh, Well, it's my favorite podcast. And if it's not your favorite, it should be. If you like science fiction and good books and smart, interesting authors who think about the future, both the near future and the distant future. This is the Good Things Come in Threes episode. And today, it is my great pleasure to have back on the pod, Meg Elison, author of the Road to Nowhere series. This will be her Third time on the show, and we're going to be talking about her third book, *The Book of Flora*, which was released April twenty-third. Meg Ellison won the Philip K. Dick Award for the first book in the series, *The Book of the Unnamed Midwife*, which also made the best book lists of Publishers Weekly and Amazon. And the second book, *The Book of Edda*, was also nominated for the Philip K. Dick Award. And since *The Book of Flora* was Just born unto the world, it hasn't won or been nominated for anything yet, but the future looks bright. Meg is on the line with me from her home in Oakland, California. Hello, Meg Elison. Welcome back to New Books in Science Fiction.
0: Hello, Rob. Thank you very much for having me back.
1: Well, I cleverly referred to your book's release in the past tense, but we're actually speaking the day before it comes out. So let me ask you, are you nervous, excited, relieved?
0: You know, it's all three and it's it's all the feelings you could possibly have about a book. I'm always anxious when a book comes out and I'm excited and I'm relieved, especially this time because it's the end of the series and I've I've wanted to move on to the next thing for a long time and it's it's so many emotions at once. It's so difficult to explain. Anybody who's debuted a large project will know what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm confident in it, and I love this book, but there's always some amount of anxiety.
1: Are you the kind of person who watches the uh, Amazon rankings?
0: You know, I generally don't, but a, a friend of mine was kind enough to email me this morning and tell me that it was number one in LGBT uh, adventure and action this morning. So that was a nice thing, but I, I mostly keep my head out of that nonsense. I don't think it's good for any writer to do that obsessively.
1: That makes perfect sense to me. (laughs) The Book of Flora spans about 40 years, and it follows several characters you introduced in the prior novel, The Book of Etta. And The Book of Etta takes place about 100 years after The Book of the Unnamed Midwife. And I know you can't possibly do the first two books justice with the short summary But I was hoping you could provide just a bit of background about the world and the events leading to the narrative that takes place in the Book of Flora.
0: Sure, I can do that. So The Book of the Unnamed Midwife is a post-apocalyptic adventure novel. It takes place in a world where the human population has been decimated by a plague. And it was a plague that was more deadly to women and children than it was to adult men, with the result that there's about one woman left on Earth for every 10 men. Things get ugly and my main character is a survivor who's also a trained nurse and midwife and uh, she makes her way across the country, mostly in drag, dispensing birth control and helping women on their reproductive journey in a place where reproduction is extremely fraught. And uh, not to give away the ending of that book, but humanity doesn't come to its end. I guess guess you know that since there are two more. So in the second book I pick up, A Hundred Years Later, in the civilization that the midwife helps found with another queer character whose name in the beginning is Edda and later becomes Eddie, who is a raider who brings back old world goods to a new world civilization, uh, all while wrestling with the issue of what gender means in such a highly gendered world and, uh, and with their place in their own society. So Eddie's journey is no less brutal than the midwife's, and um, he comes up against a tinpot dictator who is keeping a harem and making it possible to trade women like slaves and, uh, and has to fight their way through that. So Flora is a person who meets Eddie uh, as part of this journey in what used to be Jefferson City, Missouri. Flora is a silk thrower and a weaver and also has a unique and highly gendered position in her society. So the Book of Flora picks up there uh, after Eddie is somewhat passed out of her life and follows the rest of her journey from very inauspicious beginnings to a somewhat safer place in a safer world.
1: I want to ask you about that trajectory that I think maybe listeners could have gotten a feel for where you begin in the book of the unnamed midwife in a particularly dangerous world, especially for women, really for everyone, but particularly for women. And as you've said, the midwife had to disguise herself as a man. She's basically in drag to survive. Uh, to avoid getting raped, to avoid getting enslaved. And 100 years later, the same is basically true of Eddie, but it's a little different because he's not only dressing as a man for safety, but also because he identifies primarily as male. There's a change there. I feel like you move the needle a little bit. And then in Flora's world, things feel as if women have more power or uh, maybe the word is equilibrium for instance, Flora, who is who is a trans woman, sometimes travels alone but refuses to disguise herself as a man. And even though there's still dangers out there and there's slavers, there seems to be a different feeling that things are maybe a little less dangerous and the emphasis seems to be a bit more about the potential to find happiness and true self-expression. And I wonder if I'm reading too much into it or if there is an arc like that, where there is more hope as these books go on. And by the time the Book of Flora comes around, there's this sense that things are still dark, but things are more hopeful, too.
0: Things are definitely more hopeful in Flora's world than they are in the midwife's world. And and it's intentional on both of the points that you mentioned. So good looking out. Uh, I wanted... I wanted to comment on the nature of gender itself and it's a huge topic and it takes a long time to come to any kind of theory and it always, it's always fascinated and sort of enraged me that we think of androgyny and and gender neutrality as being uh, people of any gender affecting masculinity because we, we treat maleness as default and as normal. And then the most highly gendered people, the most, the most gendered and police gendered behavior uh, belongs to trans women or belongs to anyone who isn't traditionally femme aspirationally becoming femme. And, uh, and so I wanted to follow from, like you said, from the midwife who is uh, using male drag as a means of safety, but not a means of identity through Eddie, who is a fluid gender or bi gender, or as you, as you correctly said, prefers to be male in his life, all the way to Flora uh, for whom, gender is non-negotiable, and uh, she's not interested in any measure of safety or control that can be gained by being someone that she's not, Uh, not only because I loved these characters as I created them, but also because I felt that they were experiencing three phases of the same issue. And as the world goes from absolute chaos to small pockets of equilibrium, small pockets of a more peaceful existence for women, I thought the most gendered person in the series flora was the right person to experience that and to come to something like peace something that works for her as peace
1: one of the themes that runs through the book of flora is that how you're born and that applies to gender identity it doesn't really matter for an example of that in the city of shy which is an all-female city built on the ruins of chicago There's a character named Can, and she says, nobody is born a man. You're born a baby. You're born naked. Everything after that is something that you learn to do. And then similarly, Eddie's mother, Ina, says, we are bound together as a people by what we do, not how we happen to be born or to whom birth is an accident. I wonder if you could elaborate on that idea.
0: Of course. Uh, So uh, like anybody who writes novels, I am um, always wrestling with my personal philosophy on who we are, and, uh, and what our identity is actually made up of. And it's, it's very easy to ascribe identity to things that are inherent and inborn and decide that you are who you were born to be. And it's, it's much more challenging to consider your identity, a collection of everything that you have seen and heard and done. And more and more as I get older, I think about the way that I perceive people's identity and their actions and their behavior, rather than, anything that's inherent about them because inherency means something so different depending on how you view it and where you're from. And uh, I've, I've always been critical of the way that we assign certain traits to gender or to ethnicity or even to periods in life as though it only makes sense to be rebellious when you're young and it only makes sense to evidence filial piety. If you were, if you're Asian, these are things that we make up. These are things that we create through our shared and repeated culture I remember in the dawning of consciousness when I was a teenager, when I was just figuring out that I was queer and trying to figure out what gender meant and what it meant for me and uh, RuPaul, who is not an unproblematic figure, but was very important to me in the period of awakening, said that you're born naked and everything else is drag. And it just blew my mind because I thought of inherent femaleness as something that would necessarily compel you to perform femme standards, not understanding that femme means something different everywhere you go. So that was a that was an important moment of growth for me, and I think it shows up in my work all the time because of it.
1: It seems almost as if there is a positive side to this horrible epidemic that starts the series off. People are freer to express their sexual identity because people are rebuilding and experimenting all across the world that Flora and your main characters encounter. Wherever they go, there's something new. There is a kind of freedom that I think people probably don't have today.
0: You're not wrong. You can't really write a story about the end of the world without showing your hand. Every time we write about the end of the world, we're showing the things that we wish we could destroy and start over and build from the bottom. And it it always surprised me when I read books about post-apocalyptic civilizations and about dystopia, how much of uh, gender essentialism managed to, managed to continue after the world had changed so much. I mean, most of humanity is dead, or most of humanity is zombies, or we're all living underground, but men and women relate to each other exactly the way they did in the 50s. It just never seemed to be very plausible to me. So... I did that. I showed the thing that I was most afraid of and the thing that I most wanted to rebuild in writing these books. And, uh, and that's one of the anxieties of publishing is everything you create is a self-portrait. You can't help but have that be true. So that's part of it. And the other part of it is if, you, if I think about my lifetime, I think about the way a literal epidemic and uh, a period of terrible unrest and, and countless deaths have contributed to the freedom that we have now I mean, as queer Americans, we have nothing without, you know, Marsha Johnson starting a riot, without Stonewall, without the competent Conf- the Cafeteria riots, without the terrible mistakes of the Reagan administration during the AIDS epidemic. So in, in a way, our, our world did have to end for us to have what we have now. And that's that's been one of the dominant narratives of my lifetime.
1: freedom of sexual expression and gender identity and sexual orientation is not universal in this world. There's a lot of oppression still. And in particular, there's some some of your characters have a hard time accepting who they are. And there's a particular character who plays a pivotal role, Connie. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about who Connie is.
0: Absolutely. So Connie is a non-binary character and uses pronouns they, them. And I wanted to introduce them as a means of looking at the way fascism is almost always interested in control over reproduction and control over gender. And uh, Connie Connie comes to their gender identity through a series of very confusing incidents and has a hard time integrating with anyone because of that. And ultimately comes to fetishize that kind of control because of not ever getting what they wanted and hardly ever being seen the one, the way that they wanted to be seen. So it's, it's pivotal that Connie is adopted by Flora in the novel because it brings them into a place where they're in contact with very different models of femaleness and femininity. And uh, while it could be very healing and it could have showed them a way to feel more at home with who they are. Ultimately it doesn't because uh, Connie's interested most of all in control and uh, control is, an illusion and a toxic one at that.
1: So let's talk about another form of gender identity, I suppose it is. I mean, you can give me the right words to, de- to describe them, but there's this idea or these people that are referred to as frags, which is F-R-A-G-S. And they first appear, if I remember correctly, as graffiti or as a rumor. And they're really more hinted at than seen in the book. And it really isn't until the end that you find out whether they even really exist or not.
0: So I got fascinated with any way in which women could reproduce without needing men in their lives. And that's a, that's a difficult thing to pull off as mammals. So I got really interested in the idea of parthenogenesis, which exists in some species of sharks and some snakes and some worms where egg-laying members of a species are capable of impregnating themselves, uh, either in the absence of males or just under conditions that seem favorable to them. We've seen it in captivity with long-term isolated female sharks, and we've seen it in the wild. And I I read Eugene Fisher's story of a new mother, which was uh, a tip trio winner just a couple of years back, which also deals with parthenogenesis. And I started getting obsessed with the idea of personhood, both of people who could reproduce that way and of their offspring. And if we continue to define human life as having a mother and a father or human life as being born under you know the, these same circumstances, what would it mean if we had individuals who are capable of reproducing asexually by themselves? And what would it mean if their offspring could do the same? So I wanted to create Frags in the story as a legend and as a rumor and as something that people both revered and feared And uh, and maybe a regression for humanity and maybe a progression for humanity and having that be very debatable based on uh, who is seeing it. So I was trying to come up with a word for that. And I I thought of uh, fragmenting like like starfish do or like earthworms do. What if you could break off a piece of yourself like a bud, like a plant and become a new individual, make a new individual uh, as if humans were capable of reproduction through mitosis? So through fragmentation and then frags just had such an ugly sound to it, like it's got that that controlling R and the F in the front and it sounds like a slur and and after that it was just off and running. So uh, the latter half of the book is concerned with the idea of whether or not frags are real and if they're real, what does it mean?
1: It's very interesting because I think you don't often see that explored an evolutionary step or the potential for an evolutionary step in human development around sexuality
0: Right, and, and it's something that we we monitor other species for very closely. So I was reading a little bit of research about uh, the decaying Y chromosome and, and the, the decline of males and, and whether humanity is evolving towards some other type of sexual reproduction. And I couldn't resist. It was a, a dimension where my book that has traditionally been thought of as speculative fiction could edge closer to something like science fiction.
1: Well, you must have had a lot of fun creating all these different communities where there couldn't be more differences between them. I mean, communities where women are basically in control and call the shots and create hives and have as many men in their hives as they want. And then there's a community that they encounter that's all male and they think women don't exist anymore, even when they're talking to a woman. Right. <laughs> it's really remarkable. And I remember you you said in our last conversation about the book of Etta, that you were inspired partly by Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. And this book very much has that feel of discovering these strange new places with all kinds of different customs and ideas.
0: I was really interested in in books like Gulliver's Travels, but also in the idea of after the loss of national media and and immediate communications, how different our societies would immediately become we'd have these little pockets of culture where every town would have its own urban legends, and every town might have its own religion, and every town might have its own courtship rituals so that that gave me a real opportunity to get weird with it and I got really weird with it in flora and it was yeah, it was extremely fun. I loved writing uh, the city of shy and and i I definitely love writing places where women have large hives for a lot of reasons. <laughs> I also, I read for research as this book, Charles Darwin's Descent of Man, which is racist and sexist and colonialist because it's Darwin and he was a man of his time. But also, in in so much as he was uh, an early sort of anthropologist, he got caught talking to people about their beliefs about childbirth and in places where, I mean, Darwin didn't come from a place of understanding about human reproduction or how human gametes work, but there was a lot of variant belief about paternity and maternity. Uh, he encountered at least one tribal group that believed children came from the moon in at least one sense that the act of childbirth was in fact tidal. And that was fascinating to me. And I was thinking about how easy it would be to return to ideas like that if humanity were broken up into isolated groups that had a lot of reason to be superstitious about reproduction.
1: I wonder how one would eventually go about rebuilding a kind of cohesive but maybe there is no such thing as, I say, rebuilding. It's not as if we have a cohesive, shared view around the world today. So,
0: Yeah, we don't. We don't even have a cohesive view here in this country. I, Since the very first book, I've been reading about how much medical information about the human body is drastically biased toward the male body and how much of women's health is still treated as an unknowable mystery, like the more female a disease or a problem is, the more mysterious it becomes because the research just doesn't exist. So it's not as if we have a unified or well-established theory of reproduction. We can do some things that the people in my books can't do. We're capable of IVF and, and uh, intrauterine surgery on fetuses, but, uh, but we don't know everything. And it would be really easy to lose that knowledge in a couple of generations.
1: Well it's certainly true that the medical industry and the medical world has been historically full of all kinds of horrible prejudices. Oh yeah. Including uh, testing new drugs and things only on men and only on white men right. and pathologizing things that are actually normal like childbirth <laughs> treating it as if it were an illness.
0: Right. A natural process.
1: Exactly. There's
0: also there's, there's a fair amount of research that I did into the history of gynecology in the United States. And the, the person who basically invented modern gynecology, who achieved all of his research on unanesthetized enslaved women, believing that they felt less pain and that they were less than human. And it's, it's impossible to go into a gynecologist's office and not feel the echoes of that as its nascency. Like, <laughs> it, it's really difficult to explain, but everything about gynecology is dehumanizing and painful and difficult. And women's complaints are so easily dismissed that once you learn where the the science of it came from it all makes sense it all comes together and it's it's awful
1: oh well let's talk <laughs> about something maybe i don't know if it's necessarily more positive but maybe it is the key to restoring some sanity to to the world and to the world of the road to nowhere and that is in telling stories because i think all your books and you've mentioned this before are about the act of telling stories. People's knowledge of the old world comes from books and the values and norms that they try to propagate in their new world are also preserved in books like the book of the unnamed midwife, which is a beloved original Bible almost for Etta and the people around her. And I think all the societies that seem most solid to me in these three books are the ones that really value books and and in fact even build and preserve libraries. There's an entire ship of women in the Book of Flora whose mission is to preserve books, and I wrote down here what one of them said, "We keep the fire of civilization burning by collecting and protecting stories." So, that's a theme that's tied together all three novels, and you're a writer and you obviously love books and storytelling, but why did you make this such an important theme of the trilogy?
0: That is that's definitely me. I I find that I have mostly built myself out of books. I think that for a lot of people who didn't have great parents and I really didn't I had to I had to come up with role models and I had to come up with rules and I had to come up with aspirations and, and ways that I would like to be and I found it in books. I was a I was a lonely kid with a library card and so I was able to find my heroes and decide Whose life I was going to live and what it was going to look like based on those experiences. So it's it's unbelievable to me that uh, people who are in the business of building up a civilization wouldn't look to the amassed knowledge of the of the generations before it. And I think that uh, a library is the first thing you should look for when you move to a new town. Uh, I'm married to a union librarian, and that's what makes my career possible. But it also keeps us deeply involved in our community because the library is such a a resource not only of a place where we keep those stories and we keep the, the the information and the knowledge and the truths but also where we find community you know my, my partner teaches kids to use 3d printers at the library for free because that's the kind of thing you can do with a library so it was it was inescapable once i started writing the book of the end and midwife half as a as a series of diary entries not to think of the worth of diaries and not to think of people inheriting it as a tribal diary and as the beginning of a civilization. You're not you're not far off by comparing it to the the Bible. I mean, the Bible is itself a tribal diary and a set of histories of the last most important thing that happened to the world as far as those writers are concerned. So it's cheap as a writer to write about writers, but uh, you get away with it a lot easier if you put them in an interesting situation instead of just having lunch in New York in an endless series of conversations with their agent. <laughs>
1: That's true. These, these books are much harder to come by. I mean, the, the, the book of the Unnamed Midwife has to be hand-scribed over and over again to have more than one copy.
0: That's right, because we return to a world that lacks a printing press system. So we have a series of incunabula copied by different hands and passed from person to person. But that also makes them vulnerable. Mass production means that you and I have the same copy of the same book and that probably very few edits have been exercised in between editions. But there are a few incidences in the road to nowhere where the main characters realize that the, the unnamed midwife has been truncated or edited for political reasons or for portability.
1: I imagine one of the challenges of writing a trilogy is that, well, it takes so many years to accomplish. And during that time, the world around you changes, you change. So I wonder, was it hard to stick with your original vision for the series? And what, if anything, changed from your initial conception of the trilogy to the way it finally emerged in the Book of Flora?
0: The Road to Nowhere represents five years of work in my life. And I wrote the first book when I was a senior in college, when I was at Berkeley. So a lot has changed since then. I was still working in manual labor jobs uh, and... uh, and I was still thinking of myself as not really a writer. And the last book finds me doing nothing else. I've been writing full-time for the last two years. And, uh, and I definitely have changed. My voice as a writer has changed. God knows the world has changed. Uh, I was writing Flora and I was almost done right around the, the end of the 2016 election. And that was really difficult for me. I understand now that it, it's, it speaks to my privilege that I was surprised by the outcome of that election, but I really was shocked. I ended up tearing apart the last 40% of the book and rewriting it because I've always written these books out of rage. Rage is my primary motivator to write, and that hasn't changed in the last five years. I'm not sure it ever will. But I began to temper my rage with hope more profoundly in the writing of Flora than I ever had before. I got really tired of thinking of us as doomed and thinking of reproductive freedom is something that we were bound to lose. And so it was not where I began to resist, but it was where I began to resist differently when I wrote Flora. I've also, I've realized in rereading all three of the books, I've been listening to the audio editions, which are very good. And I'm, I'm hearing the changes in my own voice. And some of it is maturity and some of it is an increase in skill. And a lot of it is a, a change in my understanding of the world. And that's been kind of gratifying to hear.
1: Do you do the audio recordings?
0: No, uh, thank goodness I don't. My audiobooks are handled through Brilliance Audio, which is a company that has done incredible work with all three of them. The first one was nominated for an Audi Award because of a, a magnificent performance by the reader. For the book of Edda, Eddie slash is uh, is black in the book, and I asked them to hire a black woman to read it, and they did, and I was so gratified because she brought a depth to it that would have been impossible otherwise. And then at the Book of Flora, I asked them in my contract negotiations to hire a trans woman, and they did. And she brought a depth of performance to it that the book wouldn't have had otherwise. And uh, it's the, the reader for Flora is Shakina Nafak, and she's an incredible actress. And I'm I'm so humbled by the work she did on the book. I love it so much.
1: So you're saying the election of Donald Trump actually made you go back and want to write and add more hope to the book, which is which is an interesting reaction, I think, to the election of Donald Trump.
0: Yeah, it really did. It was, it was impossible to think of the work in the same way uh, from, one, from one day to the next, from Tuesday to Wednesday. Uh, I've been reading the book Thick by Dr. Tressie McMillan-Cottom, and uh, she has a wonderful essay about the outcome of the 2016 election. And she says that mo- uh, among her friends, the, the most surprised by the outcome of the election were her white liberal friends and that she knew better and that people like her knew better. But uh, in the moment, I was shocked and betrayed, and I felt the sexism of my own nation more keenly than I had uh, since I was a kid and watching Arnita Hill get crucified on TV. And it had been a long time since I felt that combination of rage and helplessness, and I was pretty worried about the future. I remember the night of the election, I was at my sister's bar in New York, and as she walked past me, I grabbed her by the collar of her shirt and asked her if she had the five-year IUD or the 10-year because I wasn't sure she'd be able to get one a few years in the future if she needed it. So yeah, so I couldn't keep writing Flora the way that I had been, because it was so grim, because her life was so hard, because such terrible things kept happening to her. And I realized that we can't see what we can't be. And I needed to write hopeful outcomes, even for my tortured queers who are living in an endless dystopia. I had to write better things for them. I had to come up with some way that I believed things could get better, even under the most dangerous of circumstances, which is not what I was living in in 2016, and it's not what I'm living in now. But I I came into contact with my own—I had my own dark night of the American soul. I think a lot of us did. In the end, I think the outcome of the election was not good for anybody, really. But going through that was good for me as a writer, and it was good for the book.
1: You make room for a lot of different marginalized characters in your books— And I wanted to ask you about something I read on your website, actually, which is your review of Shrill, which is the new A.D. Bryant show on Hulu. Correct. And in it, you talk about the marginalization of fat people and the scarcity of realistic, full and holistic portrayals of fat people on TV and in films. And I wondered, do you think we're going to see more shows with fat characters? And do you plan to write more? Fat characters. There was one I can think of in the book, which was uh, Madame Max, who's the mayor of Shy. this magnificent, dynamic, much beloved and very powerful mayor of the city. So I just wondered about whether that's something you plan to do and whether, you know, is it hard to do?
0: It's not hard for me to do. Uh, I loved writing Madame Max because she, frankly, lives the kind of life that I live. I, I have an incredibly privileged position in my community. I have more friends than I can make time to see, and, uh, and I've, I've never been unpopular. So uh, it was it was gratifying for me to write a fat character whose fatness did not for a second define her and did not limit her from anything she wanted to do. I do intend, I have been, in fact, writing more fat characters, and I'm finding it incredibly freeing. And also, we return to that age-old problem of the book that I wish to read is not on the shelf, and so I have to write it. And I know that there are other authors in the world who write fat characters in fiction who are fantastic at it. I mean, Carmen Maria Machado is one of the ones that comes immediately to mind. I know the writer Sarah Hollowell is working on a series with a fat main character, and, and I love the way she writes about the body and the way she talks about her own experiences, and I, I do believe we're going to start seeing more of that. I don't think for a second that even in the, t- the first tenth of the work is not done on this, and we, we still face a great deal of opposition to these kinds of stories. But I do think that the work is beginning, and, uh, and that it begins in really good nonfiction. I'm starting to see some incredible essays on fatness and on the body. Dr. Roxane Gay immediately coming to mind with her incredible work, Hunger, uh, Kiese Lehman's memoir, Heavy, about his own connection to his body. And and again, Carmen Maria Machado, who writes about fatness in an incredible way. And that those essays and that nonfiction work is filtering into fiction. And writers like Lindy West, who started off writing essay and memoir, are now creating to a fiction uh, universe in work like Shrill, which also employs the writer Samantha Irby, who wrote the Pool Party episode, who is also a fat writer, who also writes fearlessly about the body. So I think the work is just beginning, but uh, the fruits of it are going to be fat and delicious, and uh, I'm very happy to be one of those writers.
1: That's great. Well, something we can all look forward to then. That's wonderful. So what's next for you? I mean, you're done with the series. Do you have something cooking?
0: I have a lot of things cooking. Uh, I'm at that awkward stage where I have some things figured out and contracts are signed and i can't talk about them yet but uh but i am moving on to new and different works i am working on selling my first ya novel i have a, a completed uh feminist thriller that i can't wait until it gets out into the world uh i have a i have a science fiction novella forthcoming uh i have so many things i have so many things But I don't have announcements yet, so I'm going to have to stay vague on that. But I have I've worked full time as a writer for the last two years. In the last year, I have written four books. Anybody who's looking for more from me, there's going to be a lot more soon.
1: So I ask writers like you who are so prolific, how do you do it? Because you're also very active on Twitter. And I mean, you're just active. You're you're just like, I see your tweets. And I'm like, well, how is she writing when she's tweeting so much? And yet, obviously, you are. (laughs) So how do you do that?
0: I know a lot of writers find Twitter distracting and discouraging and need to have time away from it, and I fully support that. I do okay uh, staying distracted, frankly. I'm a, I'm a lifelong multitasker. But I have set hours for work. I write mostly in the morning. I have two different groups that I sprint with where we get together and we allow you know 15 minutes for socializing and then we get down to work. Uh, I have a group that meets uh, at one cafe on Fridays and a different cafe on Saturdays, and we bust out word count. I have a daily word count quota that I must meet. Uh, I have to write 500 words to get a cup of coffee. I have to write 1,000 words to get breakfast. I have to write 2,500 words to leave the house. And I think that ongoing discipline helps me stay focused on my goals.
1: Okay, that's the key. Quotas. I love it. Thank you so much for coming once again on the pod. I I so enjoy having you on and I really appreciate your writing.
0: It's really a pleasure, Rob. Thank you once again for asking me. It's been great.
1: I've been talking with Meg Elison. Her newest novel, The Book of Flora, came out on April twenty third, which for listeners was a couple weeks ago if you're listening when this first comes out and for people who are in the room which is only the, my cat right now it's actually tomorrow that it's coming out but see that's a little bit of time travel there it came out from 47 North so please subscribe to New Books in Science Fiction and leave a review your reviews really really help people learn about the show our theme music is by Michael Aaron of quivernyc.com the editor in chief and the founder of the New Books network is Marshall Poe and the editor is leanne wilson and i'm rob wolf i wrote a book called the alternate universe you can find me at robwolf.net or on twitter at robwolfbooks thanks for hanging out with us today